Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Matthew chapter 23. We're going to go from verse 29 to 39, the last part of the chapter, as Jesus continues his denunciation of the Pharisees on that last Tuesday in the temple in Passion Week, the last week of his life. He's got three more days to live. This is Tuesday. He's already given lots of parables, lots of denunciations of the Pharisees in the temple complex there, and he's just denounced them seven times in Matthew chapter 23. This is preparation for the Olivet Discourse in chapter 24 when he predicts the complete destruction of the Pharisees and the scribes and the, relig- and the Jewish religious system in AD 70 when the Romans destroy the Jewish kingdom with their troops. So we'll start in verse 29. Woe to you. This is the eighth and last woe. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. That's his common term for them. Hypocrites and blind guides, he says often. Hypocrites, you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous. Now, first of all, who is he talking about that the Pharisees build the tombs of? Is it prophets who are also righteous or is it prophets and other righteous people? Well, I think he's talking about the prophets more specifically. It's a small point, but I think that's who he's talking about. They would build grand and beautiful edifices over the graves of some of their prophets, John Gill says. They love to say, look here, we identify with the prophets. Chapter 23, verse 30, And you say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we wouldn't have taken part with them in shedding the prophets' blood, which, of course, is absolute nonsense. Oh, yes, they would have. Now, notice that what's implied here is that the Pharisees agree that their fathers kill the prophet's blood. In fact, it's sort of hard, as we'll see when we start quoting some Old Testament scriptures, it's sort of hard for the Pharisees to deny that their fathers had killed prophets. They had done it all the time, and the Pharisees knew it. They knew it. They knew that their fathers had killed the prophets, but they weren't going to confess it. They were instead going to build beautiful tombs to decorate the graves graves of the prophets so the people would not think that they were complicit with the murders of those prophets and that they did not have the same murderous attitudes that their murderous ancestors had. Now, by the way, the seventh woe is you are, he told the, Jesus told the Pharisees that they were tombs full of impurity. And this is talking about whitewashing the tombs of the prophets. And because tombs is in both woes, it's easy, easy to confuse them. This is a different woe than being full of dead men's bones. That was the seventh woe. Matthew 23, verse 31. You, therefore, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. He says, you, Pharisees, therefore, testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Now, first of all, let's talk about how the Jews murdered the prophets. Here's some scriptures. 1 Kings 18, 4. For when Jezebel destroyed the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah, that's not the prophet Obadiah, that's another Obadiah, took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and provided them with bread and water. And if you look at that passage in 1 Kings, it says that the prophets were killed several times. Nehemiah 9, verse 26, But they became disobedient and rebelled against you, against God, they being the Jews, and cast your law behind their backs, cast your God's law behind their backs, and killed your prophets, your Yahweh's prophets. You ki- they killed your prophets who had admonished them so that they might return to you, and they committed great blasphemies. So the Jew, the ancestors of the current-day Pharisees killed the prophets, according to Nehemiah, and committed great blasphemies. And Stephen, as he was getting stoned to death by these beautiful Pharisees, Sadducees, and the Jewish 
political and religious system as he was getting stoned to death in Acts 7.52, he says this, Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. Stephen was just as gutsy as Jesus was, calling them for what they were, betrayers and murderers. Revelation 16.6, John says this, For they poured out the blood of saints and prophets. You have given them blood to drink. They deserve it, as God pours out his wrath on apostate Israel. So, like I said, Pharisees can't deny that. Now, the, next, the interesting question about this verse is, how do the Pharisees testify against themselves when they build these beautiful tombs of the prophets? Well, here's a couple of options. One, according to John Gill, is building those fancy tombs kept alive the memory of their father's crimes cause, so that when people looked at those fancy tombs, they would think, oh, yeah, that was the prophet that was murdered by so-and-so. So that means they're testifying against themselves. Every time they bring attention to a dead prophet, they're bringing attention to the fact that their ancestors were murderers. And since they are of their fathers, since they're so closely tied with their fathers, that means they themselves are murderers, and so therefore they're testifying against themselves. That's one option. The other option is is that they were hypocrites because they were raising those monuments more for themselves, for the murderers, for the Pharisees, than they were for the murdered prophets. And because when people would look at these tombs, they would say, oh, aren't the Pharisees wonderful? They identify with our Jewish prophets. And so they were trying to bring praise and honor on themselves rather than on praise and honor on the prophets who had been murdered. And therefore, they were hypocrites. They didn't really care about those murdered prophets. They cared about themselves. Well, that's a good option, too. Either way, it shows that they were testifying against themselves by pointing out these tombs by building these fancy tombs because it brought to mind the crimes of their fathers and or because it was done because uh, they were looking for uh, glory for themselves by identifying themselves with their Jewish past. Matthew 23, verse 32, Jesus continues, Fill up then the measure of your father's sins. Now, fill up means to take your sins to the max. It's a common expression in the scriptures. For example, Genesis, Genesis 15, verse 16, In the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites has not reached its full measure. The idea that the cup of God's wrath has not been filled up yet. but when, In other words, God is a very patient God, so he waits and waits. He doesn't judge sin very quickly. Uh, you can look at America today for an example of that. And, but one day he's going to, once, once the cup of his wrath is filled up. So the idea of fill it up means, means take it to the max, take it to its completion. Jesus says, fill up the measure of your father's sins. In other words, you've killed all those prophets in the past. We'll just keep right on and, and complete your job. Kill me, the greatest prophets of them all. That's what he's referring to. He's referring to his own crucifixion. The Jews had a great track record of killing prophets. And so, hey, complete that great track record by killing the greatest prophet of them all. Matthew 23, verse 33. Jesus continues, snakes, brood of vipers. How can you escape being condemned to hell? Now, he's already called them hypocrites constantly through chapter 23. He's called them blind guides. Now he calls them snakes. Now he calls them brood of vipers. Is that sinner friendly? Is that seeker friendly? Can you imagine Willow Creek Church or Rick Warren's church talking to the people in the congregation and saying, snakes, brood of vipers, how can you escape being condemned to hell? Well, of course, maybe their congregation is not nearly as evil as the Pharisees are, and I understand that, but there are people like that in this world who need to be confronted with the truth that they are, A, snakes, B, a brood of vipers, and C, they are being condemned to hell. Oh, hell! Can you imagine Rob Bell saying this? He doesn't even believe in hell. 
half the evangelical church apparently doesn't believe in hell, ultimate reconciliationist, and all this nonsense. They've never, they don't even know the Jesus they profess to worship. Look at him. He's talking about how can you escape being condemned to hell? That's Gehenna, folks. That's hell. H-E-L-L. I remember one time an old political writer named Ralph D. Ralph D. Toledano back in the 60s, 1960s. He would always capitalize hell when he wrote it in his newspaper columns, and his editor kept dropping it down to lowercase h. And Toledano told his editor to stop doing that. He said, hell is a place like Schenectady, New York. You capitalize Schenectady, you capitalize hell. It's a place that people can go to. All right. Now, why does he call them a brood of vipers? A brood is a, 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 a set of children. So he says, like a den of snakes, brood of vipers. This is the same type of language that John the Baptist used when he talked to the Pharisees, Matthew 3, verse 7. When he, John the, baptized, John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to the place of his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers. By the way, that was Sadducees as well as Pharisees. They're both equally guilty. Matthew 12, verse 34. This is Jesus speaking this time. He called them brood of vipers. The vipers are just a very poisonous snake. There's snakes in the grass, these Pharisees. How can you speak good things when you're evil? You're evil. Now, it's interesting. I was talking to the secretary of one of these Messianic Jewish guys named Joseph Good at one of these conferences where a bunch of Gentiles got together, wannabe Jew, Jewish Gentiles got together, and she was telling me what wonderful people the Pharisees were. And if I just had all this stuff at the tip of my tongue, I could have said, well, how do you explain the fact that Jesus called them snakes, hypocrites, blind guides, blind guides and brood of vipers? Okay, what is a vapor like? And how can a Pharisee be likened to a viper? Crafty, subtle. It has inward poison. It has a venomous nature. In the Pharisees' hypocrisy, malice, and wickedness, they were like the serpent, Satan. Matthew 23, verse 34. Jesus continues telling them, the Pharisees, This is why I am sending you prophets, sages, and scribes. This is why. What's the reason that I'm sending you prophets, sages, and scribes? So you can kill them just like you killed all the old prophets. So you can fill up the measure of your sins, as you said in the previous, uh, in the second previous verse. Fill it up. Fill up the measure of your sins. Because not only are you going to kill me, you're going to kill the people I'm sending. Now, of course, Jesus didn't send prophets, sages, and scribes. That's Old Testament terminology. He's referring to the apostles of and prophets and evangelists of the New Testament church who were coming, they didn't understand that yet, so he used Old Testament language. But that's who he's referring to. And he says, some of them you will kill and crucify. Kill and crucify. Well, let's look at some examples of that. Stephen, who was the first martyr, he was stoned to death by the Jews. James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, Herod, with the approval of the Jews, killed him with a sword. And then James, who was probably the brother of Jesus, the head of the Jerusalem church after Jesus was cru crucified, the Jews uh, threw him headlong off the pinnacle of the temple and then killed him with a fuller's club. Oh, yeah, they killed Christians. Now, this is an interesting thing here. It says, some of them you will crucify. Now, that's kind of a mysterious remark because the Jews didn't have the right to crucify. Well, it turns out, as John Gill, and I found this reference also in the Cambridge Bible for Schools and Colleges, those two, Gill and the Cambridge Bible for Schools and Colleges, state that the second bishop of Jerusalem was named Simeon, the son of Cleophas, and he was crucified, and the Jews got the Romans to do it for them. For them. So that, I think, is 
enough historical precedent to show that Jesus knew what he was talking about there. Some of them you will flog in your synagogues, and of course that happened all the time, especially as the apostles went through Asia Minor, all the synagogues through Asia Minor in the Roman Empire, they would catch them and flog them. They would hound them from town to town, run them from town to town, and you just read the book of Acts and see that. Now, as far as being flogged in the synagogue, now Peter and John weren't flogged in the synagogue, but they were flogged by the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, which is not really a synagogue, but it's the same idea. Acts 5, verse 40, they beat them, that means the Jews, the Jewish leaders there, beat Peter and John and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus before they let them go. So they were flogged. And then Paul, in 2 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26, he's complaining against the super apostles, these phony apostles, these bad apostles who were trying to woo the Corinthian church. And Paul says this, starting in chapter 11, verse, 2 Corinthians, verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman. He didn't like to brag about himself. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Now, verse 24 says this. Paul says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Five times Jews beat him 39 lashes, which is a horrendous punishment. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Doesn't say who did it here. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people. For example, look at the look at well, just look at the book of Acts. It's all through the book of Acts. Like in, I was thinking Acts 18 at Corinth when the Jews turned on him. Uh, Acts 13, Pisidian Antioch, the Jews turned on him there. He was constantly being chased. So Jesus is just predicting what's going to happen. As John Gill points out, this word hound, I like that translation, hound. The Jews hounded Paul and Barnabas from city to city, as John Gill mentioned. All right, let's go to Matthew. Oh, first of all, one little minor point here. The parallel passage of this verse, actually it's not the parallel passage, it's a similar passage when Jesus was giving similar teaching in the house of a Pharisee. says this, because of this, the wisdom, this is in Luke chapter 11, verse 49, because of this, the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute. Now, there, of course, Luke uses the word apostles rather than sages and scribes, and he says the wisdom of God said it rather than Jesus. It's kind of a strange thing to say the wisdom of God, but comparing the parallels, Jesus is called the wisdom of God. Jesus expresses the wisdom of God. Let's go on now to Matthew chapter 23, verse 35. Jesus continues denouncing the Pharisees in the eighth woe. So all the righteous blood shed on the earth will be charged to you from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. All right, now the first thing we need to say is that earth is gase, the uh, Greek word for earth, and that can either be translated earth or land. And since this is talking about what the Jews did to their own prophets, I think land would be much better because land stands for the land of Israel. So, so all the righteous blood shed on the land will be charged to you from the blood of righteous Abel. And that's the Cain and Abel. Abel, of course, he was righteous because he offered a blood sacrifice to God, whereas his brother offered a vegetable sacrifice. And then Cain killed him and his blood sank into the ground and cried up to heaven for vengeance. By the way, some people say that it's not because he offered blood, animal sacrifice and Cain offered vegetable sacrifice, but it was rather because Cain's attitude was bad. I think that's a minority opinion. But anyway, the point is he was killed unrighteously by Cain, so that's not a problem. But here's the big problem here. The blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah. And the question is, who is this guy, Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar? 
All right, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to go through some options because there's a lot of division of, of opinion in, among scholars, Bible scholars on this. I'm going to give you the first opinion, which I think is the best in my opinion. Uh, I'm not going to stand on a hill and defend this to the death, but I think it's the best opinion that this Zechariah is the Je Zechariah son of Jehoiada mentioned in Second Chronicles 24, 20-22. Now, right off the bat, you notice that the one in Second Chronicles is named son of Jehoiada, not son of Berechiah, and that's a problem, so we've got to deal with that. But let's read this story, Second Chronicles 24, verses 20-22. The Spirit of God took control of Zechariah, son of Jehoiada, the priest. He stood above the people and said to them, this is what God says. Why are you transgressing the Lord's commands and you do not prosper? Because you have abandoned the Lord. He has abandoned you. But they conspired against him and stoned him at the king's command in the courtyard of the Lord's temple. So there you have this Zechariah being killed. And it was in the courtyard of the temple, which is, is sounds like between the altar and the temple. Would be, that would be in the courtyard also. So it fits there. King Joash didn't remember the kindness that Zechariah's father Jehoiada had extended to him, but killed his son. While he was dying, he said, may the Lord see and demand an account. All right, there was a couple of problems. First of all, this is the son of Jehoiada and not son of Zechariah. We'll look at that in a minute. But also, Jesus is going from A to Z, Abel to Zechariah from beginning to end. But King Joash wasn't at the end of Jewish history. There was lots of time. That was, what, 7th century B.C.? There was lots of time before we got to Jesus' time. Why would he have not mentioned a, a murder of a prophet near the end of that period there? Well, to answer that, it should be noted, according to the NIV Study Bible, that Chronicles is at the end of the Old Testament according to the Hebrew arrangement. So therefore, Jesus would be saying, this is from Genesis to Revelation, like we would say it, but from, from Genesis to Chronicles, from Abel to Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada. You people have been murdering people. So I think that explains that pretty good. NIV, this is the NIV Study Bible's uh, answer to who this person is, Zechariah, son of Jehoiada. So, so, uh, so does J Jameson Fawcett Brown, so does Gill. However, there's some heavy hitters who don't agree with this, which we'll look at in a minute. Now, let's look at the problem of why the son of Berechiah, Jesus mentions the son of Berechiah, but Chronicles says that this Zechariah that was killed in the courtyard was the son of Jehoiada. Well, here's some of the ways to reconcile that. First of all, it was not uncommon for a man to have two names. Now, Albert Barnes, the commentator, says that that's an option. Ellicott, the other, another commentator, says, no, that's not reasonable. Well, the way this harmony would work is that Bechariah and Jehoiada were the same guy, but just with two different names. Another option is Bechariah was the father of Zechariah, and Jehoiada was the grandfather of this murdered Zechariah. Because son of can mean descendant of. So Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, can mean he, that Zechariah is the descendant of Jehoiada, mentioned in Chronicles. And in Matthew, when Jesus says it, it means the son, the, the direct son of Bechariah. So we would go like this. Jehoiada, grandfather, Bechariah, father, Zechariah, grandson. And that would harmonize the passages. Ellicott, the commentator, denies that that's reasonable. He says that rather option C it's a manuscript error by scribes. Well, I leave. I don't. I don't know. Some way that can probably be reconciled, because I believe that that reference to murdered in the courtyard of the temple, and also what swings it for me is, is that this story of Jehoiada getting killed was so well known in Jewish tradition. There was a tradition that Zechariah's blood would not stop bubbling up from the temple floor. In fact, it was supposed to be still bubbling 
when the Babylonians destroyed the temple. Animal sacrifices wouldn't stop it. They tried to offer animal sacrifices to stop the blood. This is a tradition now. This didn't actually happen. And then it was said that even the blood of thousands of slaughtered priests wouldn't stop it. That, I, I assume that means that the destruction of the Babylonian temple in 587-6 B.C. Well, it, Jesus is referring to this murder of Jehoiada, and if it was so well-known in Jewish tradition, it would make sense that he would refer, refer to something that everybody knew what he was talking about. All right, that's option one. Here's option two. This murder of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, could be an unrecorded murder that the Pharisees themselves had committed. Now, Jameson Fawcett Brown denies this, but I found uh, Gary DeMar of American Vision in Atlanta. He agrees with this. He's, he's quoted some other guy, too, that I don't know who agrees with this view, too. And this is the way he proceeds. First of all, note that Jesus says, You murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you, and he's talking to the Pharisees, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. So the argument goes is that the Pharisees committed the altar. It just hadn't been recorded anywhere. And Jesus nails them on it. Well, the problem with that is that the you doesn't necessarily have to mean the Pharisees. Now, Gary DeMar is an Orthodox preterist, and so am I. And so I often think that you really have to look at the audience who you're talking to when you get a you. But Dee Dee Warren is also an Orthodox preterist, and she makes the point in her book, It's Not the End of the World, that sometimes preterists rely on that argument just a little too hard. And I agree with her, because right here I think the you refers to the Pharisees and their ancestor. Because the whole context of this is the tombs. They're talking about you know building beautiful tombs of the prophets that you murdered or excuse me, the prophets that were murdered, and he's trying to link the Pharisees with the their ancestors who murdered the prophets. And so when he says you, he says you murdered them just as well as they did because they're just like you. You are just like them. You're just like your murderous ancestors. And so I think the you is referring to the Pharisees and their ancestors. The ancestors did the murdering actually, and the current Pharisees murdered the prophets in spirit. So I don't think that's a good solution. I mean, it's it's plausible, but I don't. I don't think all of these are plausible, so take your pick. Then there's another guy that's recorded by Zacharias. Now, I don't think this is plausible at all, but I mention it because everybody does. There was a Zechariah son of Baruch, which is Berechiah saying it's close enough in the Hebrews. Zechariah son of Baruch was actually killed in the courtroom. He was slain just before the 8070 siege of Jerusalem, in which case Jesus would be saying, you've killed the prophets from Abel to Zechariah, and then he refers to Zechariah in the future, which is a problem there because it doesn't sound like it's the future to me. It sounds like it's you have murdered them. You murdered, past tense. So there's a problem right there. And plus, it was, it was, uh, it was, um, this guy was killed in the middle of the temple, according to Josephus, not between the temple and the altar. And he wasn't killed by the Jews' official body of the Sanhedrin. He was killed by two zealots. It was a random murder. So this is, that's not it. And not only that, Baruch is not the same as Berechiah. So we'll throw that one out. Here's option number four. This Zechariah is the Zechariah father of John the Baptist. There was an interesting tradition that, le that leads to this option. This is mentioned by John Gill, although he doesn't agree that with this option, that the Zechariah is referred to as the father of John the Baptist. Here's the tradition. There was a place in the temple that appropriated to virgins, and that Mary, the mother of our Lord after Jesus' birth, came and took her place there as a virgin. When the Jews, knowing her to have a child, objected to it, 
But Zechariah, this is the father of John the Baptist, who was acquainted with the mystery of the incarnation, ordered her to keep her place upon which the Jews slew him upon the spot. So he's trying to, Zechariah is trying to defend Mary's virginity by saying she has the right to sit in this specially reserved spots for virgins in the temple, and when the Jews didn't acknowledge that, they, they killed him. The problem with this is, John Gill says, the tradition is not reliable. Nowhere can we find evidence that Zechariah's father was Berechiah, and there's no evidence that Zechariah, John's the father, was John the Baptist's father, was slain by the Jews. Now, here's another fifth option. This is referring to Zechariah the prophet, the famous prophet who wrote the canonical book. Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo. Gleason Archer, the famous Old Testament scholar, holds this view, and so does Answers in Genesis, the famous creationist website. Here's the problem with that view. Surely the death of such a prominent prophet would have been recorded, as Ellicott points out. Gary DeMar points out the Jewish tradition has him dying peacefully in his old age. The tradition might be wrong, of course, but still, that's an argument against it being Zechariah the prophet. I don't believe it's that. Here's another one. Um, Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah. Isaiah 8.2, this is the sixth option. I have appointed trustworthy witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah. But I don't know where you get the evidence that he was killed and so forth. That's just a speculation. So I'm going to go with, it's Zechariah the son of Jehoiada who was killed. And getting back so we don't get lost in the tree, don't get lost in the forest by staring at the trees. Remember, Jesus is saying, basically saying, you every you killed your ancestors have killed everybody that's righteous, and by golly, you're going to do the same thing, the same thing. Because and, and going back to Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. That altar there is the bronze altar in the courtyard, not the golden altar inside the temple, of course, but is the altar out in the courtyard. Now this spot between the altar and the courtyard is a very sacred spot. Only the priests could go there, which aggravated the gravity of the crime. Moving on to verse 36 in Matthew 23, Jesus continues, I assure you, Pharisees, he's talking to the Pharisees, I assure you, all these things will come on this generation. Ooh, this generation. As he says in Matthew 24, what is it, verse 35, this generation will not pass away until all these things come upon you. That's all of that discourse, which I can't wait to get to in the next audio. But all these things will come on this generation. In other words, all these woes that he's talking about are going to come on this generation. That generation. That means in by 8070 is when all this stuff is going to happen. The wrath of God will fall on this generation because of the innocent blood of the prophets which you have shed from Abel of righteous men and prophets which you have shed from Abel to Zechariah the son of Berechiah and Jesus when you fill up the measure of your wickedness. All that the blood the, the judgment on all that blood that you shed is going to come on this generation. The generation is about 40 years. It's 80, 30 when Jesus was killed. 40 years later is 8070 when Rome completely annihilated the Jewish state. John Gill says this is what is being referred to here, and I agree with him. Now, notice something here. The wrath came on this generation of Jews, not all Jews for all time. There's been all kinds of blood libel and blaming the Jews and anti-Semitism all through the Catholic Middle Ages, blaming the Jews for killing Jesus. It was the Jewish leaders that killed Jesus. They were evil. They were terrible. They deserved to have their nation wiped out. But Jesus himself says, O daughter of Jerusalem, how have long to gather you, the population of Jerusalem, the people... 
he want, and they were Jewish, and he wanted to save them. He was Jewish. His disciples were Jewish. The early church was Jewish until the Jewish leaders started persecuting the Jewish Christians. There's nothing anti-Semitic about this. So you've got to remember that. All these things will come on this generation of Jews, not future generations. Matthew 23, verse 37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, she who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her, as we've just talked about in the previous verse verses. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, yet you were not willing. Gathering children together as a hen gathers her chicks, that hen gathering chicks under her wing is a common Old Testament metaphor is used all the time it means protection for example deuteronomy 32 10 he found him in a desolate desolate land in a barren howling wilderness this is god finding israel there he surrounded him cared for him and protected him as the pupil of his eye he watches over his nest like an eagle and hovers over his young he spreads his wings catches him and lifts him up on his pinions so wings are a symbol of protection Ruth 2.12, may the Lord reward you for what you have done, and may you receive a full reward from the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. Psalm 17.8, protect me as the people of your eye, hide me in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 36.7, God, your faithful love is so valuable that people take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 61.4, I will live in your tent forever and take refuge under the shelter of your wings. Psalm 63.7, because you are my helper, I will rejoice in the shadow of your wings psalm 91 4 he will cover you with his feathers you will take refuge under his wings his faithfulness will be a protective shield you feel protected by now isaiah 31 5 like hovering birds so the lord of hosts will protect jerusalem and remember the church is the new jerusalem all these promises move right on over into the new jerusalem the church and god protects all of us he protects his church the lord knows we need protecting like hovering birds, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem by protecting it. He will rescue it by sparing it. He will deliver it, Isaiah 31.5. Malachi 4.2. But let's don't do Malachi 4. Skip that one. So the idea is that Jesus wanted to protect the daughter of Jerusalem, the children of Jerusalem, the people of Jerusalem. When he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, she who kills the prophets, he's referring to the leaders of Jerusalem who are killing the prophets. And then he says, how I wanted to gather your children together. See, he makes a distinction between Jerusalem and children. The children, whenever you see daughter of Jerusalem, that's talking about the population of Jerusalem. And so he wants to gather the population of Jerusalem together. He wants to bring them into the kingdom. Yet you are not willing. Ah, now here we have some theology. Yet you are not willing. A lot of Arminians like to say, see there? God's grace is not irresistible. God tried to get the children of Israel together, yet you were not willing, for they weren't willing to come. Therefore, their human will overrode God's sovereign divine will, and therefore irresistible grace is not true. Well, that is a bogus argument that is not true for one thing. Jesus is not speaking in his divine nature here. He's speaking in his human nature, and he often prayed for things he didn't get as a human, which is, which is an interesting theological point. For example, on the cross, he says, my uh, father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Did God forgive them for killing Jesus? No, he didn't. He burnt the city down in 87, as many of the parables pointed to. So Jesus didn't get what he wanted. So he wanted them to come. But uh, the other problem with that Arminian argument is it's not the children that were not willing to come. It was Jerusalem, the leaders who were keeping the children away from Jesus. 
He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I want to gather your children. He's still talking to Jerusalem, the leaders, and you, the leaders, were not willing. It's not the children who are not willing. They're, they wanted to come to Jesus, or they might have wanted to come to Jesus if the Pharisees had let them. They were willing. They, they, they weren't resisting God's irresistible grace. They were trying to come to Jesus. And it was the evil Pharisees and Sadducees who kept them from coming. So that is a dumb Armenian argument. It's misleading, and to be fair, I'm not sure that all Armenians use that argument. It might be, you know, some uninstructed Armenians. I don't want to, I'm not really familiar with the really highfalutin, skilled Armenian theologians. They might not use that argument, but a popular Armenian might do that. Don't listen to that. It's not true. Let me quote John Gill to finish that little point up. Quote, this passage of scripture so much talked of by Armenians and so often cited by them, as Gill thinks they cite it all the time, has nothing to do with the controversy about the doctrines of election and reprobation, particular redemption, efficacious, efficacious grace and conversion, and the power of man's free will. That's a typical Calvinist soteriology debates between Armenians and Calvinists. This verse ain't got anything to do with it. Let's go to Matthew 23, verse 38. Jesus continues talking to the Pharisees. See, your house, your Pharisees, your house is left to you desolate. What does that mean? Your house is your temple. Desolate means it's destroyed. He's referring to the destruction of the temple in eighty seventy, as John Gill points out, and as all Orthodox preterists point out, and as all futurist dispensations somehow seem to miss. Maybe they don't. I don't, don't hear him talking about it too much. Notice he says, your house. He's not talking about my house. My father's house. Maybe we used to call the temple my father's house. He's beyond that now. It's your house. It's gone. They ain't no Ichabod, the spirit is left. It's going down. This is a powerful, powerful, powerful speech to the Pharisees. I wish I could have seen there. I mean, I, can you imagine the looks on those Pharisees' face as this man just rips them up from top to bottom and calls them every name in the book and then predicts their utter destruction? And they have to stand there and take it. They can't say anything about it because if they say anything, the crowd's going to lynch them. Oh, it was wonderful. I wish I could have been there. Matthew 23, verse 39. Jesus continues and finishes up the chapter. For I tell you, you will never see me again until you say, He who comes in the name of the Lord is the blessed one. Now, first of all, what does see mean? <clears throat> it cannot mean see literally and physically because they did see him again. They saw him going on the cross. They saw him before Pontius Pilate. They saw him before Annas and Caiaphas. So, yeah, the Pharisees saw him again. So he's talking about you will never see in the sense of understand me and know, and know who I am. Well, when will the Pharisees know who Jesus was? When they say, he who comes in the name of the Lord is the blessed one. Now, there's two options as to what this refers to. It could mean that Jesus is saying, option one, that these are words of hope to the Pharisees. You will never understand me as Messiah until you confess me as Messiah, until you say, he who comes in the name of the Lord is the blessed one, and I believe that you are the Messiah, the blessed one. That's one option. I don't believe it because, hey my gosh, he's just finished reaming the Pharisees out. And then all of a sudden he says, well, you guys are going to get converted. I don't think that that just doesn't fit the flow of the, of the chapter. So I think that what he's saying is option two. These are words of condemnation on the Pharisees. The coming referred to is Jesus' coming in judgment. John Gill agrees with me here. He says, you are going to understand all what I said about your house being desolate. When you see that when I come in judgment on Jerusalem, that I was the blessed one, I was the Messiah. But it's too late for you because your city has just been burnt to the ground. That's what he's referring to. He who comes in the name of the Lord, that's Jesus coming in judgment on Jerusalem in AD 70. 
And you are going to have to acknowledge then that, oh yes, he was the Messiah. And we killed him. We killed him. Now, how can we say that Jesus' is coming is a coming in judgment on Jerusalem? Oftentimes, because of futurist prejudice, people hear the word Jesus is coming, and they think that's the end of the world. As in Jesus is coming soon, morning and night and noon, trumpets will shout their doom. That great song we people used to sing. Well, here's some passages where uh, this is on an orthodox preterist view in the Olivet Discourse, which we're going to take up in the next chapter, where coming means... Uh, end not the end of the world, but coming on Jerusalem, Matthew 24, verse 3. While he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples approached him privately and said, Tell us, when will these things happen? What is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? That's the end of the Jewish age, not the end of the world. Matthew 24, 27, For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man. That is not, as we're going to see in Matthew 24, it's not talking about the end of the world. Matthew 24, 30, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky in heaven. And the Greek actually says this, then the sign of the Son of Heaven, then the sign of the Son of Man in heaven will appear in the sky. In the, in, then the sign of the Son of Man who is in heaven will appear, and that sign being the destruction of Jerusalem, then all the peoples of the land, earth being land, will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now, of course, if you're a futurist, that these verses aren't going to convince you that this is that in verse, this verse in Matthew 23:39, he who comes in the name of the Lord is referring to Jesus coming to Jerusalem to destroy it in 8070, as John Gill believes. But once we get to Matthew 24, I bet you might, if you listen to that, you will see that the preterist interpretation had an awful lot of sense, awful lot of sense. This is. This ends the last discourse that Jesus ever gave to the people. From now on, he talks to the disciples only. No more public ministry. When he says, he who comes to the Lord is blessed, that's referring to the Messiah. He's quoting a psalm, Psalm 118, verse 26, which says this, He who comes in the name of the Lord is blessed. From the house of the Lord we bless you. So Jesus once again quotes Old Testament scripture. We are finished with Matthew 23 and the eight woes. Go now next audio to Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse. I hope you enjoyed this one.